People of God, let us turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> Mark, the first chapter, as we begin a series through Mark's Gospel this Lord's Day. We'll be looking at the first 13 verses this morning, but we will not conclude it. It will have to, um, we'll have to do two sermons or one sermon in two parts, perhaps is the best way of looking at it. Let's now bow before the Lord. Our Father and our God, how thankful we are that we may call the great, high, exalted King our Father in heaven. That we may turn to this word and know that here we have the fatherly guidance of our God, who shows to us the redemption of the Son, and through the Holy Spirit applies the word to our hearts and to our lives. Our Father, a broken and contrite heart, thou wilt not despise. And so we ask that the word of the Lord would be so used in our hearts today that if our hearts are proud, rebellious, recalcitrant, not broken, that we would humble ourselves in thy presence. Continue to do so as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and continue simultaneously to rejoice in the grace of God in Christ. And we ask that if there are those here today that are lost and undone who do not know the Savior, that the word of the Lord would be taken by the Spirit of God, if it please thee, right to their hearts and save them, Father, we pray, from their sins, as has been the case for so many here today. I pray and believe, Father, even most of us. Hear our prayer. Meet us in this special way in the reading and proclamation of thy holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's word and stand. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt round his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, 
being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the gospel of Mark is one of three gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, that are called the synoptic gospels. Why these three gospels? Well, let me try to explain it in this way. If you were in our home, you might look upon one of our walls and you would see a painting uh, that was done by John Constable. That painting is a painting of Salisbury Cathedral. And we would perhaps talk about that painting and we would discover together that that is not the only painting of Salisbury Cathedral that was done by Constable, but that there were others as well. Salisbury Cathedral from the Bishop's Grounds, from the Meadows, and Leaden Hall from the River Avon. All are accurate landscapes and cathedral paintings. Each harmonizes with the other, and each one leaves its own impression. Well, so with the Gospels. Each is written by divine inspiration around the same great subject, addressing originally different audiences and leaving its own, and in each case, truthful but distinct impression. So the Lord gave us not only the three synoptic gospels, but also the unique gospel of John, as B.B. Warfield said, because no one gospel could suffice to tell us what Jesus was and did. He goes on to say, in this divine song, each evangelist has his part to sing, and each part is complete in itself while the Holy Ghost is the composer of all, the author at once of their diversity, suiting the part to the voice that is to sing it. And of their concordant harmony, by which we may get a foretaste of that vaster music which it shall be ours to hear when we shall see him as he is. Well, does that not make our hearts thrilled to study any of the Gospels and to study the Gospel of Mark? Now, we could spend all morning, indeed several mornings, upon the distinctives of the Gospel of Mark, but let me say just a few things to help us along, and we'll note some of those other issues as we move into our texts week after week. Mark was almost certainly written by John Mark, and he relates the preaching of Peter. Eusebius quotes Papias in AD 140. Mark, who became Peter's interpreter, wrote accurately, though not in order, all that he remembered of the things said or done by the Lord. Now, Papias was a hearer of John, and he was a companion of Polycarp, and so this is very early. And other church fathers actually confirm this as well. Well, if it is true that John Mark is relating the preaching of Peter, Peter must have been a very vivid preacher indeed. For even though this is one of the smallest of the Gospels, when we move through the Gospel of Mark, we find that it, is, it brings touches that the other Gospels just, just do not bring. It brings emphases and details that are found. For example, the pillow in the stern of the boat during the storm, or the 5,000 that are, that are fed by the Lord Jesus when they sat down were compared to garden beds as you would see them sitting together. All of these details abound in this brief Gospel of Mark. And it was written to a Gentile audience, probably in Rome, and he is stressing two things. First, he is stressing the deity of Christ. It's right here even in the first verses that we have read together. 
and he is stressing discipleship, very possibly in a time when Christians were blamed by Nero for burning Rome and were mercilessly treated, in which Christians actually were set up and burned in Nero's garden as torches. Mark then gives us the basic outline of the ministry of Jesus. In Galilee, chapters 1 through 8, on the way to the cross, approximately chapters 8 through 10, and then Jerusalem as he moves to the cross, chapters 11 through 16. Now, I pray that our time in Mark will underscore in our lives just the themes that are emphasized by the Holy Spirit and intended in Mark's gospel. Mark has been so short, it has been ignored in favor of Matthew and Luke, but this is God's word as well. It is a quick-moving, brief, vivid, orderly account with a lot of time markers and place indicators. It's very basic, and it regards Jesus, as William Hendrickson put it, as the mighty and conquering Savior King to whom all men should turn in humble faith, and that means us. So there's a remarkable stress on the deity of Christ in Mark's gospel, and we will see it as we move along even today. The first thing then we see as we come to these verses is an electrifying title, an electrifying title. It's here in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God which I would argue is the title for the entire book of Mark. We call it Mark. The title actually is here in verse 1. The history of Christ's ministry then constitutes glad tidings, and Mark intends through this book to arm us with his gospel so that we may be faithful disciples of the Son of God. Now, when this word gospel is used, of course, there is Old Testament background that would have been familiar to many, but especially to the writer and, of course, to Peter. Isaiah 52, verse 7, that speaks of, of the, the ones whose feet are, 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 are suited with the gospel of peace or other passages in the Old Testament, God's kingly saving rule breaking in on our need. But probably in Rome... It would have been the pagan background of the term gospel that would have most, most likely come to mind, because it was a term that often was associated with the emperor and emperor cult and the emperor worship, so that birthday announcements and the coming of age and an accession to the throne of an emperor all were called gospel. So immediately we see that there is a, there's a message for us. There's a contrast between all of the Gospels that the world offers, all of the false Gospels out there in the world, and the one true Gospel of God's own Son. Not Rome, but Jesus. Here is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, in the good news, in the glad tidings, in this Gospel of God's Son. And all around, we are called by heralds to false gospels that promise that if we just buy their wares, life will be good. But Mark says, here is the one true gospel. The coming of the Son of God in saving reign is the good news. Indeed, the only good news for sinners. The only good news of salvation. And ultimately, the core of the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, the first four verses. 
The entire Gospel of Mark is entitled the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus, which means Savior, Christ, which means Messiah, the Son of God. So this is Jesus Christ, his messianic name as our prophet, our priest, and our king, but he is also in this opening verse called the Son of God. And as J.A. Alexander noted, Mark presents Jesus as a divine person, a partaker of the Godhead, and sustaining the relation of eternal sonship to the Father, from whom both take their respective titles. This high Christology right from the beginning, William Hendrickson put it this way, throughout Mark is constantly ascribing divine qualities and activities to Jesus, showing that the author regards the Savior as being indeed the Son of God in the full Trinitarian sense. So right away, right from the beginning, the triune being of God, the deity of Christ, and the mission of this Son of God as the incarnate Lord is stressed. And Mark draws no attention to himself, not to Peter. John the Baptist does not draw attention to himself in his preaching. Each pointed to Christ, the Son of God. For if you are to be saved from your sin, God must do it. We cannot make ourselves acceptable to God. And God must become man to save us. Do you know that? Do you understand that you cannot save or redeem yourself? That you cannot make yourself presentable to God? That you cannot make yourself acceptable to God? And that it required that God himself, the second person of the Trinity, would come down, 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 infinitely down in order to redeem us from our sins? That's what Mark's gospel is all about. But then we see that there's a forerunner. That's the second thing. A sense of expectancy is created in the text by promise and fulfillment. As it is written, John the Baptist appeared. And in verses 2 and 3, there are two Old Testament scriptures that are run together, Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And John is the forerunner of the Messiah, a fulfillment of prophecy. He is dressed as a prophet. He's eating the food of a wilderness prophet. This is the Elijah that would come. I remember when I was a boy hearing a preacher speak of Elijah as that sun-scorched son of the desert. Well, John the Baptist is that sun-scorched son of the desert, identifiable as the second Elijah who comes proclaiming his message, preparing the Messiah's way in the desert. Why the desert? Why the wilderness? Why didn't he just go to Jerusalem to do this? Why not some other city or place? Why the wilderness? Because the location is making a theological point. The wilderness is where God led his people. The wilderness is where God had met his people Israel. This is where God showed his grace. This is where Israel learned how to trust the Lord, where they were brought to repentance. Hosea 2.14 foretold a restoration of wilderness blessing. Isaiah 40 begins with the voice of one crying in the wilderness, introducing a vision of restoration. And then that prophecy is followed by frequent reference, references to a new exodus for the people of God. Therefore, when Mark tells us that the crowds were coming 
in order that they may hear the message of John as he preached the message of repentance and be baptized. They were coming out to the wilderness to hear the forerunner's message because of these prophecies. They knew that a forerunner would come and that following the forerunner would be the Messiah. And because Elijah promised had come, because coming out to the wilderness meant coming to God's new beginning, they were coming out massively. There was a knowledge of the Word of God, at least sincerely on the part of many of these people. There was a knowledge and a response to the Word of God. They knew their Bibles. They saw the signs. They acted upon it. I wonder, does that characterize your life? And your heart, that you know the Word of God and have a responsive heart to the Word of God. So John points to Christ, and Christ brings exodus. He brings new beginning, and Christ brings a release from the bondage of sin and self and from this present evil age. What a call for us today. What a call to my heart. What a call to your hearts How bound is our culture to sin and self and to moral autonomy? We are so addicted to pleasure and convenience that our culture, for example, clamors for aborting babies in the name of body autonomy, as I heard someone in state government recently say. We just get rid of what is not convenient, even if it means murdering children. We need the message of repentance, each of us. And that's the third thing we see, the message of repentance. Now, I've mentioned this theological message that comes with recognizing that he is ministering there in the wilderness. William Hendrickson made a trenchant remark when he said, the wilderness through which a path must be made ready for the Lord is in the final analysis, the people's heart inclined to all evil. Listen to that again. The wilderness through which a path must be made ready for the Lord is in the final analysis the people's heart inclined to all evil. And that will be stressed in Mark's Gospel. Chapter 7, for example, it's the heart, the heart, the heart that is being addressed. So we have come to a very important concern, not only in Mark, but in the entire Bible and in the New Testament. And yet it takes on an even deeper significance here in this context because repentance has rightly been called the focal message of the kingdom. The kingdom inaugurated by Christ's coming brings with it inevitably the call to repentance. If it is the focal message of the kingdom, why is it that we hear so little about it? Well, the baptismal background is Old Testament ritual cleansing and Jewish proselyte baptisms such that when a a Gentile became a Jew, he underwent a baptism. And this point also is arresting. And I'll tell you why. John the baptizer, which is a better translation than John the Baptist, John the baptizer is saying, the Jews had no inherent rights to be members of God's kingdom just because they were Jews. By their sins, they were needy, just like the Gentiles whom they called dogs. They needed the same radical change of heart. 
they needed also repentance and the forgiveness of sins through the Messiah. The same change of heart needed by the Gentile was needed by the Jew. Now there's an important application to us. In the church, those born into her pale have many privileges, and we're thankful for those privileges. However, you must know Christ for yourselves. You baptized children, baptized adults, you cannot ride into the kingdom on the coattails of others. You must know Christ for yourself. You must be clothed with his perfect righteousness received by faith for yourself. You must be born again. You must be converted. You must have faith and repent. I'm not saying you must know precisely the time or the place of your conversion. In covenant youth, this often happens sweetly and tenderly and at a very young age. But for it all, it is still true that you must be born again. I can think of two denominations that have fallen into complete apostasy over time. And one of the reasons that I am convinced that they have done so is because they have taught a viewpoint of regeneration and covenant children that is far removed from what the Bible teaches, a presumptive regeneration, so that generations were brought up in their denominations and were not told, you must be born again, you must believe in Christ, you must be converted. So that we view our children as privileged to be a part of the church visible is one thing of great importance, but to presume that they are regenerate and never to be called to faith in Christ is quite another. For the Jews to say in this context, well, I'm a Jew, why do I need to come and be baptized by this, this prophet? Why do I need to repent? Why do I need to believe? So as William Young says, a system for breeding Pharisees, this presumptive regeneration a system for breeding Pharisees whose cry is, we are Abraham's children, could hardly be better calculated. John's message then is one of repentance. It has been defined by J.A. Alexander as a thorough change of mind, both of judgment and of feeling with respect to sin. And it was a baptism, verse 4 tells us, for the remission of sins. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism with a view to the forgiveness of sins, not that baptism produced forgiveness of sins. But they were confessing their sins. And the way in which this is stated in the Greek New Testament is, is, is so needed for us to understand because it is an intensive form of the participle confessing. In other words, it was from the heart. In other words, it was thoroughgoing. In other words, it was true confession from the depths of their soul. In other words, it was intensive. They confessed, perhaps we could say they confessed with umph. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And the theme is applicable to us, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What sin is in our heart? Each of us should ask himself that I need to take before the Lord and truly and sincerely and with umph confess 
that I may know the cleansing work of Christ in my heart. And so with a view to forgiveness, verse 4 says, the word here, forgiveness, means remission. The word remission actually means literally a sending away. Are your sins a burden to you? Would you like for them to be sent away as the scapegoat was sent away in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement with the sins of the community laid upon him? Sent away until it could no longer be seen. It was out of sight. So here is John, the forerunner of Jesus. The call to repentance did not cease with the forerunner but was essential to the gospel message proclaimed by Jesus. For we only read through the 13th verse, but when Jesus begins his ministry, he was saying, according to verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It is the same message preached by the forerunner, John the baptizer. And when we come to Jesus' words to his disciples, just think, for example, of Luke 24, where he says in verses 45 and following of Luke 24, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And so there is the call to preach repentance even until Jesus comes again. And in the first sermon that Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, it was a preaching that called them to repentance and they were cut to the heart as they were called to faith and repentance in Christ. Again, I say to you, this is the missing note in preaching today. Oh, there are many missing notes, but this is a major missing note in preaching today. John's ministry was that of a forerunner. His baptism was not the baptism instituted by Christ, though there are certain parallels. However, we too should contemplate John's ministry and ask, how does my heart respond? We should read this in its historical setting, but having read it in its historical setting, I should say, how does it now apply to me here and now? Do you see, and believe me, I've asked myself all the questions I ask you, do you see repentance as a universal demand relating to you and your heart? Universal in the sense that it is preached wherever the preaching of the gospel happens, but universal in the sense that there's not some element in my heart that I can set aside and say, I'll repent of everything else, but I will not repent of this. No, I will not allow. Jesus himself said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. The very message of John is the message of Jesus at this point. And it's all about the gospel and the message that we're called to preach is in the context of the forgiveness of sins wrought by Christ who would go to the cross and be raised on the third day. R.T. France speaks of repentance as a revolution of attitudes and values. Your need is the Holy Spirit producing this desire in my heart, in your heart. Oh, I want that in this congregation. I want that in my life. 
No hard-heartedness, but the work of the Spirit of God producing repentance. So the fourth thing is this. Repentance is the continuing message of the church. Repentance, the continuing message of the church. Let's go a little deeper into the call to repentance. Repentance is my acknowledgement that I have not understood God rightly. And I have not understood reality properly because of my sin. I have botched my interpretation of the world. I have not understood God, creation, man, redemption, reconciliation, or consummation, or anything in God's world or the world to come rightly because of my sinful, depraved nature. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, when sinners are granted saving faith, the obverse side of faith is always repentance. Where there's faith, there's repentance. Where there's repentance, there is always faith. So young people, this is why you cannot listen to the scientists as an authority for proper ethics. And you cannot, you may not listen to university teachers, secular university teachers for a proper view of the world, or to critical theory for a correct view of life, or for politics or relationships. Now this is illustrated very well in Vern Porthrus, one of his, one of his works, in which he has a, a chapter on counterfeit stories of redemption. And in this particular section, he takes one example, Marxism, which is on the march in our country and throughout the world again. And he says this, a number of people have recognized that classic Marxism has a redemptive plot that counterfeits Christian hope. Instead of sin, as understood within the context of Christian theology, Marxism has the oppression of the workers. Instead of the Christ triumph over sin, Marxism has the communist revolution. Instead of the gospel, it has the call for workers to unite and cast off their chains. The communist party is the vanguard announcing the gospel and the nucleus of the new society. So it is analogous to the Christian church. And the coming communist society of prosperity and peace is the analog of biblical hope for the new heaven and the new earth. Instead of God, the laws of history propelled humanity toward its utopian goal. The climactic tipping point, the communist revolution, brings the death and resurrection of political and economic structures through which the new world is inaugurated. So he has a chart. Christian redemption, sin, the Marxist redemption, economic oppression. Christian redemption, redemption in the work of Christ, Marxism, the communist revolution. Christian redemption, the death of Christ, Marxism, destruction of the old economic order. Christian redemption, the resurrection of Christ, Marxism, entrance of a new order. Christian redemption, the church, Marxism, the communist party. Christian redemption, gospel, Marxism, the call to workers. Christian redemption, consummation in the new heaven and new earth. Marxism, communist society of prosperity and sharing. Christian redemption, God's plan for redemption. Marxism, 
laws of economic history. Now, I'm not trying to bring a lecture on Marxism this morning, although I think it would be an important thing for us to understand. The point is, every worldview that sets itself up autonomously is a substitute for a biblical worldview. Every worldview that sets itself up autonomously, that is not derived from Holy Scripture, established under its authority, is a substitute for Christ and His work on the cross and in His resurrection. And yet many Christian young persons are heeding the call of the false gospel of socialism. And if so, repent. In repentance we turn to Holy Scripture to determine our view of everything. Our system of interpreting the world, our worldview, and this is the 180 of repentance. My worldview is messed up, and I need the Lord's salvation and a submission to His authority to be on the right track in order to rightly estimate everything. And I now begin to see everything in view of the fact that God has revealed His Son and He has given us His written Word. And our great presupposition now is God's revelation of Himself in the Bible. Recently I heard a well-known Christian leader among the Baptists, though he's influential beyond, say that he was watching a well-known skeptic and the skeptic was speaking to an audience and exposing the Bible to ridicule. And the crowd was applauding. And so the conclusion that he came to was not, well, we need to teach the Bible better. We need to confront these false teachings. No, the conclusion to which he came is that we need to limit ourselves to preaching the resurrection and we must no longer hang the Christian faith upon the written word of God. Where does he find the resurrection if not in the word of God? How long will the resurrection be believed when the Bible is discarded? Since when do we let the world tell us what is acceptable? When did lost people gain expertise over God's written revelation? So these people are coming out because they are responding to the prophecies. They are responding to the Word of God. And John the Baptist is the forerunner predicted in Scripture. And Jesus is the Messiah promised in Scripture. And Jesus' view of the Bible is that God's Word cannot be broken Are you ashamed to follow in the steps of your Savior who believed in an inerrant Bible? One Reformed theologian has observed that when Scripture becomes a problem, Christ becomes a problem. Yes, indeed, and I add that certainty is impossible when Scripture becomes a problem. We no longer have our only hope in life and in death. And that is where our culture is. There's no certainty. And the result? We take the Bible out of the church. We no longer preach it thoroughly to the people of God. We no longer apply it to the heart and to the soul. And the church is weakened and no longer proclaims to a needy world around it these grand and wonderful and absolutely essential truths. And we see our culture then, and often the church going along with it, inventing autonomous false narratives. Men believe they can change into women and the other way around and on it goes. It's moral insanity and it is the result in large measure of the church discarding 
the authority of the Bible, I would argue. So the problem, the reason for repentance is the depravity of the human heart. What is human total depravity? And what what does it mean? How does this point us to our fundamental need of faith and repentance? Well, we'll need next week to finish that point. I can't finish. I want to remind you of something that happened here in 1980. I was reminded by Steve Sly of this a couple of years ago. So I actually went and looked, and what I'm going to give to you are from newspaper accounts of what happened. This is when the Skyway Bridge collapsed in May 1980. A violent wind blew a freighter off course, and it hit the bridge. 1,200 feet of the bridge fell into the Tampa Bay, and a bus fell 100 feet into the bay, killing 23 people. And other cars, one stopped 14 inches from the edge. And a biker coming saw an 18-wheeler coming toward him, about to go right over. The ship's captain put out a distress call. The bridge is down. Stop the traffic on the Skyway Bridge. And a car with a family of four went right over. And the biker saw another bus coming. And he took off his red T-shirt and he waved, the account says, frantically. And another car stopped. What do we do? The biker said, just keep waving. Just keep waving. We've got to stop them from carrying on the way they're going. And they waved and wept as they watched people die. And then another 18-wheeler came behind the lanes crammed with cars coming right toward the man waving the red shirt. The next morning... The driver of the truck told a news reporter that he wasn't going to stop. I was just slowing down to shout at the fool, waving his arms like a crazy man. But when I tapped my brakes, they locked off my wheels and my trailer skidded sideways and then my truck jackknifed. His cab flipped one way and the trailer went the other, blocking all three lanes of the traffic behind him. Then the driver saw what was in front of him, got out of his cab, and exclaimed, That man saved our lives. Spiritually speaking, that is what the preaching of repentance is all about. That's what missions is all about. That's what the message that you take to your children and families and you take to your community is all about. We are all the men with the t-shirt waving, stop. They think you're a crazy man, but you know they're going off the brink. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their 
sins. Oh, may God use us to wave the red t-shirt. Amen. Amen.